John Adams and Nancy Williamson wrote in their book, Divorce, How to Know or How and When, excuse me, to Let Go. They wrote, quote, Your marriage can wear out. People can change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. Brothers and sisters, that is a New York Times best-selling book on how and when to let go. The authors make self-fulfillment the guiding principle of life. One can call failure success. Disintegration, growth, disaster, triumph. The human mind is capable of immense perversity. And our culture celebrates what we just heard. Our, our culture celebrates divorce and calls it normal. Brothers and sisters, we have a problem. The problem is, is that marriage is difficult. It isn't easy. We often talk about it as it's easy. We often see it romanticized as, as something that is easy and something we sort of fall into, but really don't see the darkness that often comes and the difficulty of two people trying to live life together in unity and in harmony. We often go into marriage with certain expectations, and when those expectations are not met, then we abandon that marriage and seek for another. And our contemporary culture provides a singular answer to the problems of marriage. In our culture, the only solution to a difficult marriage is escape or divorce. It's what's celebrated and what's honored as, as normal. But see, a larger problem that results in divorce is the way that we pursue marriage and relationships. The fact that we pursue our relationships in such casual and often uh, selfish ways proves the fact why we have such a widespread problem. Dating in the church often looks like dating in the broader culture. Another issue is cohabitation. Our culture accepts it and so the church accepts it. Let's test drive things, see how things work out before we tie the knot. Brothers and sisters, cohabitation is not only morally wrong and sinful, it works to undermine the couple's future chances of marriage. In fact, statistically, those who cohabitate have a much greater chance of divorce than those who don't. Another issue is seen is dating for long term without any commitment to marriage. We're just going to date. Date for 30 years, not even going to get married. Yet another issue seems to be this incessant desire to protect one's assets. You know, getting prenuptial agreements. Brothers and sisters, let that not be heard among us. Our culture has a growing expectation of divorce. 
For many of you, you've lived here in our society for decades. You, you've seen the prevailing tides in this particular issue. And, and I wanted to say one thing. Perhaps one of the issues of it has been the church's silence on this particular matter. I am not clueless. I think if we did a survey this morning, I think we would come back with a 10 out of 10 result. 100% of the people here, I'm, I'm sort of stepping on a limb, have been somehow in some way affected by divorce. Perhaps it's you've experienced it in your own life or your child, uh, as a child you experienced that or, or, or someone close to you. And you're, I mean, it touches all of us. This issue isn't something that just affects a, a subset of our society, but rather is something that affects all of us. Through no-fault no divorce laws, divorce is not only tolerated, but it's accepted. It's the social norm. It would be weird to not expect it. However, the reality is that only 29% of marriages end in divorce. You know, we hear this statistic all the time. You know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. You know, in the church it's the same, blah, blah, blah. That's just not true. It's just one thing to sort of throw out right now. Uh, that's not true. Uh, Ed Stetzer, he's a statistician, uh, he did extensive research on this, and he demonstrated that, no, that's not accurate, not 50%, that's awful, that's kind of high. In fact, actually 71% of marriages succeed, and so it's often not as bad as we're told. But nonetheless, there is a problem. And I think this morning as we think about this, we don't want to harden our hearts, sort of become reactory, and like, wow, this is, this is tough. I just have a disclaimer I want to make. So I want to be very clear that there is much to be said about divorce and about marriage and about remarriage. Much to be said about that. And a sermon is limited in scope. We're going to think about Jesus here, okay? So I'm not going to be able to answer every question that might be coming into your mind, every problem that you faced. You know, every marriage, every relationship is unique, Okay? And so I don't, want to, I don't want to paint with a broad brush here this morning, and, and, and I don't want you to hear me that way either. I hope and my prayer is that as I may not be able to deal with your hypothetical situations, my hope is that you'll hear Jesus this morning more than you'll hear me. I pray that you'll hear Jesus' words as comforting and encouraging, and that the grace of Christ will come clearly. I also want to say something else. Jesus is the one who sang this. If you have a problem this morning with this, then your problem is between you and Jesus, not me. Okay? My hope is that these words that I say point to what Jesus is saying. Okay? These are Jesus' words, and so we must be confronted with that. Well, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning. I will say this as you're turning to Mark chapter 10. If you have any questions, if I've said something that seems ridiculous, it's probably true. And so um, please, um, this particular issue can be, um, I, I know that it has not handled, been handled well by preachers. I have heard sermons where those who have felt the horror of divorce have felt that they are a subpar Christian because they have fallen into this. And that is just not true. We are all sinners saved by grace this morning. And so I do not want you to feel like I am preaching to you, but I also want you to be convicted and know that how we handle our relationships matter to God.
Now, it's been a while since we've been in Mark's Gospel, so just a little review. It's been a few weeks, I know. Hopefully it's been a nice break. Um, I was actually very encouraged to come back to Mark's Gospel. Um, being the one-year anniversary of me being here as your pastor, I don't know if particularly preaching on divorce maybe was the best thing, uh, but, uh, but by God's grace, we are here. Um, it was coming for a long time. I saw it in the horizon. I knew that it was coming. I took that four weeks to kind of catch my breath and get ready and prepared in my mind as we came to this, because this is such an important issue. Brothers and sisters, we cannot look at the world around us and not think that marriage and family, divorce, remarriage, um, human sexuality is not important. It is essential. It is vital to flourishing as a society and as a people. So in Mark's Gospel, we had been traveling through the chapter and chapter, uh, really the latter part of chapter 8 and the chapter 9. Jesus began to change his, his focus in ministry. He began to think about disciples more. He kind of shifted. Mark is shifting the camera, the scene, if you will. He spent the beginning half of the gospel thinking about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now, as Jesus has turned his attention towards Jerusalem, and now we're beginning to journey on into those favorite passages we all know well, the, the triumphal entry, the, the washing of uh, the disciples' feet, the, the, the Last Supper, the, the, the death of Christ, and ultimately his resurrection, those, those well-worn passages in our Bibles. We're coming to those, and it's Jesus draws his disciples closer and closer to Jerusalem. He is thinking particularly about how to follow him. He's giving particular attention to how do we follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a disciple or a Christian this morning? And so over these chapters, Jesus has, has given sort of laser attention and focus to what it means to be a disciple. And in this particular context here in chapter 10, Jesus is seeking to, to teach his disciples the most fundamental aspects of life, marriage, children, and possessions. You just can't get more fundamental than marriage, children, and possessions. And over the next few weeks, we're going to give our attention to those things in God's word. This morning, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed man to, a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of hearts, or heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. We see in this passage, Jesus teaching us about marriage and divorce. Perhaps a familiar passage to you. Just to solidify and summarize what Jesus is teaching, I thought out some things here. First, marriage is created by God 
to be a covenant commitment for a lifetime. However, as a result of human sinfulness, God has given concession for divorce under certain biblical conditions. The follower of Jesus cannot live a life based on what God has conceded due to human sinfulness, but must commit themselves to a life of monogamy and fidelity. Jesus calls his people to a wholehearted commitment to do what God has ordained at the creation with respect to marriage. That is, if you will, what Jesus is teaching here. That marriage is a covenant commitment for a lifetime. But because of our sin, God has conceded human sin and he has allowed for divorce under certain circumstances, under certain biblical conditions. However, God is not particularly pleased with those solutions. And as Christians, we cannot and do not concede to these things. We don't, we don't look for loopholes of how we can get out of our marriages, but rather as Christians, we commit ourselves to a life of monogamy and fidelity. So we're going to think about divorce and marriage and particularly what Jesus has to say. First, what Jesus teaches about divorce. Look with me here. We're told by Mark that Jesus has been traveling. He has uh, traveled from Capernaum and now he arrives in Judea just beyond the Jordan. An important thing as we consider here in a moment why this is happening. We're told by Mark that Jesus has been set in a trap. Jesus is there teaching, perhaps in a synagogue, perhaps uh, in a larger area where this massive crowd, notice here, it doesn't say crowd singular, but crowds. There, there's these crowds of people that have gathered around Jesus. I just want to say something. It's when the crowds are the biggest that Jesus deals with the most difficult subjects. Jesus doesn't cower away from this difficult subject. This subject of divorce touched them just as much as it touches us this morning. Divorce was such an important or such a uh, terrible thing, a part of their life there in, in Judah, Judea, that this would have touched the crowds just as much as it touches us this morning. We're told here that Jesus has been confronted again by the Pharisees. We haven't really seen much of these Pharisees for a while. They've been kind of on the, the back burner, if you will, and Mark has now thrust them back into the foreground. He's bringing them back into our minds because we know ultimately what these Pharisees are seeking to do is the, to kill Jesus. And they're going to stop at nothing to see Jesus die. They're, they're going to do whatever it takes for Jesus to be killed. And one of the things I want you to see this morning is that everything Jesus is saying here is in response to their hostility. And so if you read these words of Jesus, you may think that they're harsh and cold and there's not much grace in them. And you're accurate. Because Jesus isn't talking to Christians. He is talking to hostile sinners who want to do nothing but rebel against God and His Word. And so what we're going to do is draw out some principles for our lives through this teaching of Jesus. But I want you to see this morning that Jesus is coming off a little, little, little harsh, a little hard. Like, man, Jesus, that's a little rough, dude. What do you mean? You marry another, you're committing adultery. Oh my gosh. Jesus, that's some tough words. It's hard. Even the disciples are, are struggling here, aren't they? They're like, Jesus, what does this mean? What do you mean by this? And so they're struggling here. And so, so don't, 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 don't interpret this as like Jesus is a meanie. 
Jesus particularly being rough because he is being uh, treated in a hostile way. We need to be careful then uh, that we don't over, be overly general in our application of Jesus' words. It's a sin, in a sense, become Pharisees ourselves, legalists, and, and sort of look at everyone's marriages and everyone's lives, and, well, if it doesn't line up particularly with these words, then, then somehow you are sub-Christian. It's just not true and not what Jesus is saying, excuse me, in this passage. So understanding what's going on in the background here is particularly important to interpretation. And that is, the cultural question of the day was exactly what, the, what these Pharisees asked Jesus. The, the headline question, if you will, perhaps today would be transgender, perhaps same-sex marriage. You know, we, we talk a lot about that. We ask a lot of questions about that. Um, well, in Jesus' day, a question that was asked often is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Or more specifically, Matthew brings out the the uh, uh, he brings out more of what's going on in his gospel when he writes, um, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause?" And so, in sense that they, they they're 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 trying to get Jesus, they're trying to trap Jesus with a loaded question. Now, remember where Jesus is at. Jesus is there in the Jordan Valley. Not too far from Herod's house. And if you'll remember, uh, Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, was murdered for this particular issue of divorce. Uh, John the Baptist was, was beheaded because he stood up to Herod and his divor- or the divorce of Herodias so that Herodias could marry Herod. And do not think that it's a coincidence that they are trying to get Jesus to talk about divorce in the earshot of Herod. (laughs) They want to see Jesus dead, and they know that Jesus' buddy died this way, so hey, let's get Jesus this way. And so we must see this is the context by which this is happening. And so Jesus turns the question on them. He says, hey, look, what did Moses have to say? Now, uh, you may not be familiar with the Bible, and, and this may seem strange, like, hey, who really cares what Moses has to say? Uh, don't we really care what God has to say? Well, Moses wrote the, the first five books of the Bible. Okay, And so, in essence, what, what, G, what, what Jesus is appealing to here is the law, appealing to uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, uh, the, the sacred writings uh, delivered by God through Moses. Okay, and so in essence, what, what Jesus is asking, hey, what did Moses say? What did God say? What's God have to say about this? And, he, and they quote here for us, in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, what they're doing there is summarizing uh, Deuteronomy 24. Now, you don't have to turn there if you want to look at that later, but I'll, I'll read it for you now. Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because, now listen, because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs off of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter hates her and marries and writes her a certificate of divorce, so this is the second divorce for this young lady, uh, and divorces and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, uh, uh, or the latter man dies, and it's confusing, uh, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first husband, 
who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that, is, that, that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. The, the, the issue uh, for the Pharisees and for the Jews at large was this question of has found some indecency in her. Um, and so for generations, the Jews had really sat down and tried to figure out what does that mean, indecency? What does it mean, some indecency? And so, like I said, Matthew is bringing that out in this parallel passage. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is, if you will, the, the first no-fault divorce law. Or at least that's how it was being interpreted. In the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinical teachings from the 2nd century B.C., uh, there's two groups that uh, write about this. One is the Shammai, which is a conservative rabbinical group. And they taught that a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. For it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. So they interpret Moses' word as meaning sexual immorality. And I would argue uh, persistent in that matter. Persistent sexual immorality. Uh, that is that her, the spouse... Has the, the, the man may divorce his wife if she has an affair. Okay? And that seems to be what Jesus is dealing with here, as he's assuming everyone agrees with. The Hillel, which is the liberal group of rabbis, they agreed that, yes, that uh, infidelity was a cause for divorce. However, they took it a step further, uh, and actually just included everything. And this is a quote from the Mishnah. He may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Rabbi Hekbah says, even if he found another fairer than she. So we see here that the struggle going on in Jesus' day was, hey, can I get rid of my wife for any reason? You know, she cooks me a bad meal. You know, she spoiled my dinner. She didn't have it on time. She doesn't look very good anymore. This other one looks a lot better than her. I trade her out for another one. So you, need, you, you see what they're doing. You see the casualness of it. You see they treated them like cattle, like you could trade them out, like get rid of them. And, and you might have been confused by what Moses was saying there where he says about the one leaving and then coming back and all that confusing stuff going on there. Well, what that was was about protecting the women from being treated like they were uh, some sort of cattle that could be you know, sent away and brought back if they wanted them. They would be traded like trading cards, like playing cards, like exchange them. Like, oh, I want that one this week. I don't want that one anymore. That one's not no good. You see that? And so what Moses is doing here is giving concession, not permission. And so something you want to be very, I want to be so clear about this morning, is do not confuse concession, excuse me, for permission. God is giving them a concession, not giving permission. He's not saying, this is what I, this is, boy, divorce will lead to human flourishing. No, that's not what he's saying. He's like, because of your sin, I will concede and allow it. God was seeking in the passage there in Deuteronomy to regulate divorce, to protect women from men, to protect them from men. And remember, our culture, we can't just like read our culture back into theirs. Um, if, if you're a woman this morning and you work, uh, the women in this period uh, didn't work. And so they depended upon their husband for, for safety, protection. 
And what was going on, though, is that men were abusing that, abusing God's word, finding loopholes to try to somehow get out of. They were, if you will, proof texting the scriptures. They were going to the scriptures and saying, boom, right here is a proof why I can get a divorce. They were trying to comfort their, their consciences with God's word. Brothers and sisters, we do the same thing. Perhaps this morning, if you've gathered with us today and you have a, a poly blended shirt on, well, brother, sister, I guarantee there's a Bible verse that says you can't have that. There is. You go look it up in Leviticus 18. You can't have a poly blended shirt on. Well, you take that and you apply that rigidly uh, or just apply that generally. Uh, you'll be like, wow, what do you mean I can't have a pot? Well, that passage isn't meant for you. It was pointing to a particular reason. And, and don't just proof text the Bible. This is sort of an example. Cons, cons, what it is is to form a teaching or doctrine without consideration of the context, especially, especially how it fits within God's redemptive plan of salvation. Uh, so that whole poly blend, poly blend thing was particularly uh, about God's redemptive plan through the nation of Israel and how they were to be separate and different. And so it doesn't really have anything to do with you today. But how did we come to this point? How did we come to the point where man felt it necessary uh, to seek out divorce? How did we arrive at this? Notice what Jesus says, why God gave that word. Look at verse 5 with me. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, It is because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. It's because of our hard-heartedness is the reason why God allows this to happen or gives concession for this. And hard-heartedness is just a reflection of one's willingness not to follow God. God has been so clear. This is, this is what marriage is to be. This is, this is the designs of it. This is how it's, it's supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to involve. Here's the players. One man, one woman. Not two men, not two women. Some combination in between, but rather one man, one woman, united together forever. Boom. That's what it's to be. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we must not be hard hearted like the Jews in this sense and like the Pharisees and think that, look, I'm just going to go to God's word to find some sort of excuse, some sort of, some sort of loophole to get out of my difficult relationship. And I'm going to talk about context here in just a minute, or particular issues uh, centered around, you know, when is there biblical grounds? And so don't just conclude and shut your brain off just yet. Perhaps there would be concessions for divorce. Look, we love easy roads. We love easy roads. We love it. Uh, we love an easy life. We don't like conflict. Perhaps, I hope you don't like conflict. I don't like conflict. Um, I, you know, confrontation, we like the easy days, we like difficult, you know, we don't, you know, we like just to, you know, laid back, chill, we don't want to be all tense and things like that. I remember when I moved from the Midwest uh, to Maryland, uh, one of the things was this aspect of hills. So if you've ever been to the Midwest, we don't have a lot of hills, uh, pretty things are pretty much flat. And so when you drive, it's pretty simple. It's an easy road, right? Uh, there's no hills. There's some curves. But, but it's, you know, it's pretty flat. It's kind of boring, if you will. Uh, that's why truck drivers have a difficult time driving through the Midwest because they can fall asleep because it's so boring. It's like there's not much challenging to it. You kind of snooze uh, through it. And so when I moved to Maryland, one of the challenges was driving through the mountains in western Maryland. I mean, it was like, ah. Oh. This is crazy. I dreaded it every time we had to drive home or, or drive that way, those mountains. Because, because, you know, honestly, I don't, I like easy roads. I don't like difficult, you know, I like it just to be easy. And that's how we are often in lives. We, we like it easy, but, but in a culture that celebrates moral relativism, you know, whatever I want goes, 
Sort of, you are the master of your own ship. You can make up your own way. You can decide your own path. Look, the church must be clear and consistently different than what the world believes. We must not celebrate divorce as a good thing. We must not see no-fault divorce laws as something that's good for society, but rather we should work to help protect women and children from no-fault divorce laws. Do you know those laws undermine and do not protect children very well at all? Men as well need protection from from spouses that on a whim. What Jesus here is teaching is that divorce is not God's design for his glory or for human flourishing. Let's be honest. Many of the divorces we hear about are motivated by sin and not obedience to God's word. And brothers and sisters, we must not exploit God's word as some sort of escape hatch to get out of our difficult relationships. So what do I do if I've had an unbiblical divorce? One that is not for the reason of sexual immorality. I'm going to give you sort of three reasons. Uh, or three. Um, I'm going to choose my words very carefully here. And please do not overgeneralize my words. Okay, um, Be very careful. Um, your conclusions you've um, I've been thought this out well. The Bible gives us concession, not permission, concession for three reasons. And really two, but I'm going to give a third one just to be very clear. First is adultery, and I would say persistent sexual immorality. So don't, 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 don't hear that and say, okay, if my wife or my, my husband cheats on me, then I'm out. No, the Bible actually exhorts us to reconciliation to repentance, to walk in an understanding way, to help grow, all those things, okay? Secondly, Paul gives a concession in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for abandonment. That is, that if a spouse abandons the other, um, whether that just get up and leave, check out, bye, see you later, I would, I would argue that persistent sexual immorality is abandonment, um, it is a form of abandonment. And I wanna, I'm going to give you a third one, which falls under abandonment, and that is abuse. Okay, uh, Whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever. Um, that falls under the category of abandonment. Okay, But uh, I, I like to you know, sort of throw it out there because I want to be very clear. If you're in a relationship this morning that you are being abused, get out. Work towards reconciliation, but get out. Protect yourself, protect your children. And so if you have friends or family that are involved in abusive relationships, help them get out. Then work on reconciliation, repentance, so on and so forth. So we want to see the goal in mind is always reconciliation. Every single time. Now, we understand that sometimes the spouse won't want to reconcile. We understand that sometimes that's difficult. But how do we, as Christians, think about if I have been involved in an unbiblical divorce, what do I do? First, repent. <laughs> Recognize that this, is, this was not God's plan for my life. This was, this was not meant for my flourishing. And one of the things that I, want to, I will say is that I, I know the people that are on my side this morning. 
And you would think that it would, wouldn't be the people that have been divorced. No, it's typically the people that have been divorced who are on the side of the preacher on this particular matter. They want to warn married couples, no, flee, don't do that. It's terrible. It's painful. They want, they, they, they want to encourage you in that. Um, so, so don't think that they're against you in this. Secondly, reconcile with your spouse. Reconciliation, again, is the goal. But what do you do if the spouse remarries? How do, you, how do you handle that particular issue? Well, by God's grace, you know, pursue your wife that you're currently married to or, or however that, you know, whatever the particular context is. What if I'm considering divorce? What if you're this morning like, you know, I'm considering, I'm contemplating that. I really think that that would be the, the good thing. Let me just encourage you, no, it won't. Seek reconciliation. You have to really reconcile this fact. Just really consider this for, you, for a moment. If you're considering divorce, you will have to stand before a holy and righteous God, and you will have to explain to him why you, what your justification was, what your validation was to violate his word. Jesus is so clear on this matter, you will have to stand and say, look, this was my excuse. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we're going to find many valid excuses before God. So we want to fight. We don't want to give up. We want to stand strong on God's word. Let's move on to Jesus' positive instructions about marriage. We're going to go very quickly through this, so don't get nervous about, man, that preacher is really going to go at it today. Uh, he's really, he's really long-winded today. That's just what my wife thinks. <laughs> Amen. Look with me in verse 6. Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one but two, but therefore God is joined together. Let not man separate. Jesus here appeals to creation as the foundation for why divorce is against God's purposes and God's design. God created man. Because of his creative ability, he gets to say what that creation looks like. He gets to decide how that creation is to live its life. He, I want you to see here that God, ground, or excuse me, Jesus grounds marriage in creation. So when you think about, you know, sort of where we're at, God, you know, so you've got creation, fall, redemption, consummation, you know, on the spectrum of God's redemptive purposes. In creation was when everything was good and well and perfect. And that is where we see God giving us the instruction for marriage. So he doesn't give us marriage after the fall. No, marriage precedes that. It's a creation ordinance. So creation, God in creation designs marriage with particular focus, with particular purposes for our good and for his glory. That's why he does it. You see the purposes of marriage here. We see in verses 7 through 8 that marriage is a lifetime commitment. Marriage isn't something that we fall in out of and fall out of. It's not something that we can say, oh, I just, you know, I just fell, fell out of love with him or her. I just fell out of love. Don't got no more love left in me. No, no, no. We see it's a lifetime covenant, commitment before God. We see it's intimate. It, it's, the, it's the context for sexual relationships. Clearly, Jesus is teaching us and God's word teaches us that sexual expression happens only within the confines of a one flesh union. 
And therefore it is an intimate relationship. Like two plants growing in the same pot. Those roots get so intertwined, you can't separate them. What we see in marriage is an intimacy. This is why when you see couples that have been married for 50 years, they look like each other, they talk like each other, and they think like each other. Because that is God's glorious purpose for marriage. As much as we try to fight against it, look, we're getting nudges and everything like that. Um, you know, that's true, it happens. For God's glory, it doesn't. We see also a permanency. Marriage is a permanent. Jesus says, let not man separate. What God has, has brought together. I want you to see, this is something that God has done for His glory. God has brought you together with your spouse. He says, man should not separate that. When we seek to separate from our spouses, we are undermining God's work of joining us together. That's why we fight and work towards unity and reconciliation. You see ultimately in verse 9 that marriage is a covenant relationship before God. When you are married, you are not married between you, yourself, and the, you know, the minister. <laughs> no, that minister uh, is standing on behalf of God and uniting you. You are being united in a covenant relationship before God. And divorce distorts that picture. Divorce, really, why it's so terrible, isn't because it destroys lives, and it does, but because it destroys the beauty of God. The unity of the Godhead. It's to say, when we abandon our spouses, that God could abandon us. First and foremost, marriage is really about Christ and the church. Think about this for a second. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage's design was all about Jesus and the church. So way back when, when God created man and woman and said, get married, and have babies, and live in a, in a lifetime commitment, God was really giving us a picture, a, a movie of what he was going to do centuries later through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when our marriages are undermined by selfishness and lack of, of care for one another and love, then what we are declaring to the world as Christians is that Christ does not love his church. That Christ could leave his church if he wanted to. Christ could abandon his bride and just leave her uh, our marriages are a reflection of God and His relationship to His bride. This is what Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 5. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is the mystery of the church. And the beauty of marriage is the beauty of the church. And that's why we hold up marriage in, in such a way. How do we then respond? I know we didn't deal with everything, so I apologize. But how do we respond to, to, to Jesus' teaching on divorce? I think first we pray that God would give us godly marriages in our own congregation. 
We would see marriages that would be God-honoring, that would be a reflection of sacrifice and servanthood and love. That we would pray that God would protect us from the temptations that are inherent in marriage. The hard-heartedness that's, that, that lingers under the surface, that looking for the, the escape hatch to get out. That we would lock arms in arms and fight against the enemy that loves to destroy marriages. That we would fight for one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and stand on God's word together and not, not be afraid to speak the truth in love. Brother or sister, I don't want to condemn you this morning. Grace of Christ is sufficient. It's not your obedience and holiness here that, 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 that is the foundation of your relationship with Jesus. Perhaps you've been affected this morning by divorce. Perhaps you have personally gone through the horrors. Perhaps your spouse has abandoned you or had an adulterous relationship or, or just in your own sinfulness. Whatever the circumstances may be, I want to remind you about God's grace in Christ. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to save you. Divorce isn't the unforgivable sin that churches often make it out to be. Repent and believe in Christ. May we look to the beauty of marriage. May we look to Christ as the example of, of how we live our lives in our marriages. Husbands, look to Christ if you want to know how to love your wife. Wives, look to Christ in the church if you want to know how to love your husbands. B.B. Warfield was a professor of theology from 1887 to 1921 at Princeton University. Um, Princeton University is a Presbyterian uh, school. And during this time... Uh, Princeton was a uh, was beginning to be attacked by the onslaughts of liberalism. German liberalism had crept into uh, the theological school, but B.B. Warfield stood hard on the truth. Boy, he he stood hard. He wrote some of the best work ever on the inerrancy of Scripture and the uh, sufficiency of Christ. B.B. Warfield was a warrior. And he fought against liberalism, and he kept it out until his death. Once Warfield died, Princeton was overrun by liberalism, and it still is today. But what people don't know about Warfield was his love. Warfield never traveled to conventions or spoke at conferences, though he had been invited. But why? Why was it that Warfield never left home? Why Warfield never became bigger or greater than what he was? Well, it was because the year that Warfield married his wife, Anne Pierce Kincaid, they traveled to Germany for their honeymoon. And on their travels, there on the beach, his wife was struck by lightning and was paralyzed permanently for life. Therefore, Warfield, from that day forward, loved and devoted himself to his invalid wife throughout the remainder of her life. That was often mentioned by the people who knew Warfield as one of the evidences of the manifestation of the Spirit in his life. Because of her needs, he seldom left home for more than two hours at a time. He would run over to the university, teach 
a lecture, come back and care for his wife, feeding her, clothing her, washing her. Friends, the point is this. Warfield could have easily found a way out. He could have tucked her away in a nursing home or made someone else care for her. But what we see in Warfield is reflection of the kind of devotion that you and I need to have in our marriages, in our relationships, to pursue our wives, to care at the expense of our own professional careers. Warfield could have been the greatest theologian ever, but rather he sought to be the best husband ever. A reminder to us that marriage is a commitment for a lifetime, for God's glory and our good. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give you glory and praise. Father, we know that these are difficult topics. It is often hard to think about even our own sin, our own failures. Father, may we be reminded today that our justification is not because of our failures or our goodness, but solely because of Christ's success. Because of Christ's victory on the cross and in the resurrection, we know that you forgive sinners. And Father, I pray that as a congregation we might have marriages that reflect the beauty that we've heard in your word and exemplified in Warfield and others. Father, may we lift up godly marriages as an example to us all how to love, care, and serve. And Lord, I pray that we would give you glory in our lives. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.